0: Welcome to the Antioch Sheffield podcast. We are so glad that you can join us for today's message, which is brought to you by Pastor Todd Roberts. For more information about Antioch Sheffield, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk. Good morning, everybody. Well, as Ian said, uh, uh, I am so glad to see all of those of you who actually made it this morning. And uh, we are sad that all of you that are uh, at home watching online can't be with us. Uh, but when I arrived here early this morning, uh, I'm pretty sure I could have skated across our car park. It was an ice rink, so uh, we just felt like it was the best thing to do to take it easy and to not uh, try to, you know, force the issue. And uh, I'm really thankful for the opportunity to carry on. Uh, online. So uh, today I'm going to be wrapping up our autumn series that we're calling Disciple, which is a series about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And the big idea of this series is that being a disciple, which is a word that we don't really use much in our culture, is pretty similar to the idea of what we would think of as like apprenticeship. Uh, So for example, if, if you wanted to apprentice as a plumber, what would you do? You would go find uh, the master, a master plumber to train you. You'd spend a lot of time with him. You'd watch everything they did. You'd watch, you know, where they get their supplies from. You'd watch how they do their jobs. And eventually the goal is that you would become a master plumber yourself, that you could go plumb a building all by yourself. And in many ways, that's a great analogy for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so uh, what we've been saying is that being a, a disciple and apprentice of Jesus is really organized around three values or goals. And those are being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing the things that Jesus did. And this is really, you know, uh, this is what, how we measure the Christian life in a lot of ways. It's a great way to evaluate, you know, uh, it, it, different aspects of your Christian life. Am I, do I know what it's like to just be with Jesus? Am I becoming like him? Am I doing the things that he did? Because becoming like Jesus is actually the goal of the Christian life. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way before, but somebody asked once, you know, what what is Christianity meant to do to a person? You know, what, what is the goal? And uh, Paul answers this really clearly in Romans 8 29, and he says, For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. In other words, you know, Paul, or Paul, what Paul's saying there is that is that we were created, when we, when we become followers of Jesus, is that we're, we're destined to become like him, and that's the goal, that's the impact, that's, that's the effect that Christianity is meant to have on our life. And I always found that kind of surprising. I thought it would be about mission or something like that. But actually, I think these two things are connected. You see, I think our transformation to become like Jesus is perhaps the most evangelistic thing we can do. Being transformed... From, from the old person that you were before you met Jesus to, to a whole new person that, that thinks like Jesus, that talks like Jesus, that acts like Jesus, that does the things that Jesus did is, 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 is a witness, a testimony to a watching world. It says things that the best evangelistic presentation never could. It, it, gives, it, it, it proves the validity and the power of our faith. And so, how do we become like Jesus? And we've talked about this in this series, but one of the ways that this happens is we embrace the the patterns, the lifestyle of Jesus for ourselves. And if you look through the life of Jesus, you see that there are certain habits and routines that he had, like prayer or fasting or studying the Scripture or observing the Sabbath that was just part of his routine, his habits. And, and if we want to become like Jesus, we've got to do the same thing. Because these practices were vital for him if he was going to stay connected to his Father. And that's how he lived his life, in this connection with God. He only did what he heard the Father, or what he saw the Father doing. He only said what he heard the Father saying. And these practices kept that intimacy, that connection vital and alive. And it's the same for us as well. So as we conclude this series today, the practice that I want to look at is the practice of solitude. Now, I talked about this a little bit earlier in this series, but I want to come back to it today because I think it is maybe the most needed practice, perhaps, I don't know, they're all, I could make this argument for all of them, but I really think this is one of the most needed practices for us in 21st century western culture because we live in a culture that is just spun up all the time it's we're we're going 90 miles an hour it's everything is 247 and it's always on and we are uh, it's very effective at distracting us from the important and getting us to focus on the trivial the whirlwind that we live in in our culture drowns out the whispers of god and the practice of solitude is the antidote to this. So today, I wanna, I wanna just talk a little bit about this because <laughs> I think you know, for many of us, this whole idea is just is, is a strange concept and I'll get into to, to why some of that is. But let's first of all, let's define what I'm talking about. What do I mean by the practice of solitude? Here's my working definition. It's a temporary, intentional withdrawal from social engagement to come home to ourselves In God's presence. A temporary, intentional withdrawal from social engagement to come home to ourselves in God's presence. Now, there's two distinctions I want to make here right off the bat because we can get confused about this. And first of all, solitude is not isolation. Solitude is not isolation. There's a difference between solitude and isolation, and that is choice. You know, we we make the intentional choice to withdraw and practice solitude. With isolation, we don't have that choice, and the result is often loneliness. And this was the issue for so many people during all the lockdowns that we had over the last year and a half, is that we didn't have a choice in the matter. We just were forced to isolate, you know, we were self-isolating, or we were, we were stuck in our homes, and that's why it was so difficult for our mental health and for our emotional well-being, because it wasn't a choice that we had, we were being forced to do it, and so for many of us, we, were, we just felt lonely, and, and it was a struggle for us. But that's not what we're talking about today. When we choose solitude, our goal is to withdraw from our normal interactions and social engagements with, to enjoy the companionship of God. The author, Richard Foster, he puts it this way. He says, loneliness is an inner emptiness. Solitude is inner fulfillment. So this is the important thing. This is different from isolation. Solitude brings inner fulfillment. Second thing I want to say is that solitude is giving attention to God in our inner life. In other words, solitude is not your time to veg out. Solitude is not me time. Solitude is not, you know, we think of when we're alone that we can do whatever we want on our own terms, but this is not, you know, this is not the opportunity to just mindlessly scroll on your phone or watch a bunch of films or binge on Netflix or read a book or listen to music. This is a a time to intentionally give attention to what's going on in our inner world and be attentive to God. And then we allow God to initiate with us, to to say what he's wanting to say, to do what he's wanting to do. So this is an intentional time when we're setting aside the distractions to focus on what's going on in our inner worlds and to give attention to God. Now, solitude isn't unique to Christianity. It's been practiced in many different cultures and religions throughout the, the centuries, But it is very evident in the Bible. In fact, you see this in in a lot of the different leaders in the Bible. You see it in the life of Abraham and the life of Moses. You see it, David practicing solitude. You see Elijah practicing solitude. I'm sure I could name many others. But since this is about being a disciple of Jesus, we should look at what Jesus did. And Jesus definitely embraced the practice of solitude. So let me give you some examples of that. You know, we talked last week about Jesus's uh, temptation in the wilderness before he began his public ministry. And uh, he began that, or right before he begins his public ministry, he, he would draw us into some pretty intense solitude. Matthew 4.1 tells us that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, because he'd just been baptized by John the Baptist, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Now, just imagine that. I know we're familiar with this story, but just think about that for a minute. 40 day, what if I told you, hey, I want you to go spend 40 days out in the Peak District, no phone, you're going to have just your, some basic uh, essentials for survival, but no phone, no news, no people, no food, just you and God, and the devil's going to come tempt you. Oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, this is intense solitude. But this is what Jesus was led by the Spirit of God to do, was to embrace this practice of solitude, to prepare himself for the temptation he was going to experience, and I believe to prepare himself for the ministry that he was about to engage in for the next three years. And I think, you know, we think, man, that must have been quite an ordeal for Jesus. But I think that Jesus... Uh, developed an affinity for the wilderness. I think he developed an affinity for solitude. There was something about it that he liked because he kept coming back to it. And if we keep reading in Luke chapter 5, it says that Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. So he just keeps going back to that place. And then if we keep reading, you know, there's uh, in Luke 6, we see that Jesus went up on a mountain to pray and he prayed to God all night. This is in the context of he's about to to appoint his 12 apostles. So he's asking God for direction, and he spends the whole night by himself up on a mountain praying. Imagine doing that, in a, again, in the Peak District. Uh, that's, that's pretty intense. I don't know many people that would do that. Then when uh, Jesus heard about John the Baptist, his cousin, uh, that he, was, he had been executed by Herod, it says that he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Again, he seeks solitude. Then after the feeding of the 5,000, after this intense day of ministry, it says in Matthew 14 that he went up in the hills by himself to pray. And night fell while he was there alone. And then there's other examples of this. You know, when, uh, when Jesus, early in his ministry, he's ministering at Peter's house, and they're bringing the sick and the demonized. And it says that, you know, he was staying up late into the night ministering to these people. It says that before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up, and went out to an isolated place to pray. Or or, or think about the end of his life in Gethsemane. You know, Jesus is about to go through the greatest trial of his life. He's about to go to the cross. And as that moment is approaching, what does he do? He withdraws to the garden of Gethsemane with a few of his disciples, and then he withdraws from them, and he goes off on his own, just seeking those last few moments of solitude to be strengthened and encouraged and helped before he entered into the most severe trial of his life. So I could go on and on, but I think you see the pattern here. Jesus would minister publicly, and then he would withdraw into solitude. He'd minister publicly, and then he'd go back to practicing solitude. He would come out and come in. There was a rhythm that he embraced. And, it's, and if this was important for Jesus, it's important for us as well. In fact, Jesus encouraged his followers to, to do the same thing. He said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, he says, but when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father in private. Now, this could be five minutes of prayer, or it could be 40 days in the wilderness in prayer, but Jesus is saying there's something about getting away where it's just you and God. This is the reality of our faith, is that those moments where it's just you and God, where you are just face-to-face with him, and solitude is essential for this. Like I said, could be five minutes, could be 40 days, but he, Jesus is telling us, hey, go away, get alone with your father, meet with him directly. Now, I think I've proved my point. I think you get this, right? You know, Jesus practiced solitude. I'm sure you would agree with me. I'm sure you'd agree probably that that it's important for us to practice solitude as well, but let's just be honest with ourselves for, for a moment. Maybe kind of Think about what you're feeling right now as I'm talking about this. Is there a bit of an internal resistance to what I'm saying? Do you feel that kind of like, uh, I don't know, are you starting to like rationalize and justify why this message doesn't apply to you, why, why you shouldn't actually do this, this isn't a practice that you need in your life? If you're feeling that, then I just want to ask the question, Why? Why is it that we so naturally resist solitude? Is it that we're afraid of it? Is it that we're intimidated by it? Does it seem like a waste of time? Does it seem unrealistic? Just for a moment, try to get in touch with what in you might, if you're feeling resistance, what is it that's causing you to resist this? I think a lot of us resist this idea because solitude is terrifying to people. I mean, think about it. I mean, we're, we're petrified of being alone. We, we see it as a punishment. You know, when you're a child, maybe your parents sent you to your room when you did something wrong. Or, 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 you know, we read it, you know, hopefully you haven't experienced this yourself, but people in prison, when they really mess up, they're confined to solitary confinement. So we think of solitude as something that's a punishment, something we should avoid, not something we should pursue. But remember, those are things that happen to you, that's isolation. That's not the solitude that we're talking about. But I think solitude has tremendous benefits that are worth the discomfort that you're going to feel when you begin to practice it. And one of my goals today is to help you see that solitude is not something to be avoided, but it's something to be embraced. But why? Why should we embrace it? What's the benefit of solitude? Why do you need this in your life? Well, maybe the best analogy I could give you is like a, uh, you know, a a jar of muddy water that's been shaken up. And I think we have a a picture here of it. You know, it's a you know, versus one that's been left alone for a while. Maybe you did this in science class when you were a kid, you know, where you 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 learned about sediment and how, like, water carries sediment downstream, and then when it kind of the flow slows down, the sediment drops to the bottom. But I think that picture on the left of that jar is a picture of our souls in this culture. It's all stirred up. You know, we're running 90 miles an hour. We've got this appendage known as a smartphone that is constantly distracting and disrupting us and, and maybe you've got school or maybe you're working or you've got a fiance or a significant other or a spouse and you've got a family and you've got a kids and you've got your activities and their activities and, and, and you're hyped up on the drug of accomplishment and accumulation and your social media feed and busyness and, and, and hobbies and social life and if you're, you're probably, if you're here, if you're watching this morning, you're probably involved in church as well. And as a result of all that movement and activity, our souls are clouded. You know, think of it as just stirring up that jar and all the, 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 the sediment rises back to the surface and, and, and suddenly we can't see clearly anymore. We lose sight of ourselves. We lose sight of God. We lose sight of, of, of our perspective and, and we get confused. And this is when we start to make bad decisions. And I, and I want you to understand that our culture is designed to keep you on the left there, to keep you in this place of where, where the, the waters are constantly being stirred up, where you can't see clearly. It's designed to just keep us in the matrix, keep us uh, uh, running and accumulating and doing more and accomplishing more and being active and being connected and being an influencer. And... I also believe, and the reason for that is because I believe there is an enemy for our souls. Jesus believed in the devil. I believe in the devil, and I believe the devil wants us to keep doing that himself. He wants us to keep chasing our tails and keep our eyes off of the eternal and focused on the very temporal. But you've got to understand your soul wasn't created to operate like that. God doesn't want you to live that way. He wants you to be still for long enough for the sediment, all the junk in our lives, all the things that are going on, all the anxieties, all the fears, all the drivenness, all the the, the distraction and the addiction to sink to the bottom so that we can see clearly again. That's what God wants you, wants to do with you. That's what he wants for you. He wants you to be able to see clearly. And that's why the practice of solitude is so important vital for us. And that's why Jesus kept retreating to it over and over again. See, solitude gives us three things. That clarity that I'm talking about, I think it gives us clarity in three areas. First of all, it gives us self-awareness. Self-awareness. Because when we slow down and we stop distracting ourselves with all the noise and the activity, you begin to see how you're really doing. (laughs) You begin to recognize your anxieties, your sadness, your drivenness, your addictions in ways that you didn't see it before. Uh, I like how Sam Radford says it. He puts it this way. He says, When we fill up our lives to the point that we never slow down, we stop ourselves from facing up to reality. The mystics have long valued silence, stillness, and solitude. They know this is when the truth slowly, often painfully, rises to the surface. See, solitude allows us to see how we're really doing to get insight into our character, and forces us to reckon with what we find there. So if you want to grow in holiness, if you want to become more like Jesus, you've gotta be willing to to spend some time reckoning with the good, the bad, and the ugly that you find inside yourself, and nothing exposes those things more than solitude. Secondly, solitude allows us to see God more clearly, allows us greater God-awareness. If you think about this, this makes sense, because intimacy isn't possible in a rush. You know, true intimacy, whether it's with uh, people or with God, it happens when no one's in a hurry. There's a great book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry that I highly recommend by John Mark Comer that's all about this idea that, that when hurry enters into your relationship with God, it just causes the whole thing to, to fall apart. It strains it. This is why, I mean, this is it works this way with our relationships with people as well. This is why date nights are so important for marriages. You know, we've gotta have those times when we go from being side by side and just doing life together to actually being face to face and being able to look into each other's eyes and actually hear one another. That's where intimacy happens. And it's the same with God. Hearing the, the still small voice of God can be really challenging in this world of constant activity where, you know, it's like trying to hear a whisper in a disco. You know, the whirlwind of activity in our culture drowns out the whispers of God. And so stopping, slowing down, giving full attention to God allows us to become aware of him again. <laughs> I think that it's, uh, you know, like if you're having a hard time hearing from God, this is such a good practice to embrace because, you know, it's, it's, with, the, with all the activity, it's like that muddy jar gets stirred up and, and we just can't hear anymore. And so just stopping, stepping back, and letting things settle allows us to hear from him. I uh, discovered this for myself at one point, uh, not long before we moved out of the United States. I wanted to get some time alone with God, so I went to a convent near Houston, and I spent four days on a personal retreat. And I would love to tell you that it was just heavenly, that I just floated along in a cloud of bliss just hearing from God. And, but I have to tell you, it was actually really, really challenging. I got distracted. I got really bored. I got uh, frustrated. I, pondered, I wondered if this was a waste of time. I thought about going home early a lot, especially in the first 24 hours. Uh, because really, and, and I'll talk about this more later, but, but when, you, when you get alone, you start to spend time with God, there's something called the mind monkey that shows up, and it's like a monkey that's on uh, caffeine that's just jumping around, chattering, saying, look over here, think about this, and uh, you know, your, your mind just kind of goes crazy, and it's really unsettling. And I th- you know, for those four days, I, I, I didn't do much. I just tried to read the Bible. I went for walks in the woods near the compound where I was staying. I, I, I did what I could, and I journaled a lot, but when I got home... And went back and reread everything I'd written over those four days. I was astonished because it didn't seem like anything was going on at the time. I felt like, well, I hope this is helpful, but but actually, I re- read it later and I was like, wow, God was speaking to me with remarkable clarity. I just was uncomfortable with the situation. I was so spun up by the world that slowing down made me feel really anxious and 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 uh, and stir crazy. But actually, God was speaking to me. I just needed to slow down enough to hear it. So solitude gives us a real sense of God. It allows us to hear his voice. Finally, I think solitude gives us what I'm calling situational awareness. In other words, we receive the clarity that we need for making decisions or facing difficult situations. Solitude gives us clarity in the midst of the fog of everyday life. So think about Jesus in Gethsemane again. You know, he's about to go through this really hard situation. He's just had the Last Supper. Now he's got a few hours left, and and he knows what's coming. And so he goes to this place, this quiet place, away from the crowds, away from even his own disciples, and he he just gets face-to-face with his father for an hour or two just to get that last bit of strength and perspective to endure the ordeal he was about to go through. So solitude is essential for that. Solitude gives us the perspective, no matter where you're at, that, that you need to help you make good decisions. You know, if you're, if you're facing a major decision, I highly recommend getting aside for a, a day or two and seeking God in, a, in solitude. Because, you know, if you're thinking about getting married, thinking about changing jobs, moving somewhere, all of those times, this is really important to just pull back from the, root, the, the, the constant pace of our culture and actually hear from God himself. And this is vital for leaders. If you're a leader, you know, we've got a lot of leaders in this church. This is such a vital practice. And leaders throughout the centuries have utilized this over and over again to just pull back from the normal routines of their leadership to get perspective, to get rest, to get the strength that they need and the perspective they need to keep making good decisions, to keep leading forward. So this is a vital, vital practice for leadership. I know for me, solitude has saved me many, many times, both in leading in the church and leading my family. So many times when I've done, pulled back and been faithful to do this, where God has redirected me and taken away some of the anxiety or dressed it in such a way so I didn't live my life in reaction to whatever was, was driving me. Now, let me say that solitude, the benefits of solitude, they, they don't happen instantly. You know, if we go back to that picture of the, the, the different jars, you know, there's There's a progression from the very muddy jar to the clear jar. It it takes some time to get there. That water doesn't just settle down right away. It takes a long time for that sediment to fall down to the bottom. So we've gotta be patient with it. We've gotta allow time for the the process to work. And like I said, you, you, you might be in the middle of it and be facing a, a very the mind monkey you know jumping around shouting dragging you all over the place when i try to practice solitude the mind monkey often you know suddenly brings up questions that and, and and i'm almost compelled to google them right away you know like you know questions like what is the lowest temperature ever recorded in venezuela you know i've never thought about it before but suddenly i have to know the answer right these are the kinds of things that happen but you got to just push through that and i'm going to talk about some practices you can embrace as we get to the end of our message it, that will help with that. But you gotta just trust that there is a process that's happening and you may not notice the effect on you. Like when I was on that retreat, honestly, it was kind of challenging. I'm like, is this doing any good? But when I came out, oh my goodness, I was a, I'd heard from God very, very clearly. So you, you gotta trust that as you practice this, whether you feel like so peaceful and blissful or whether you just feel like, man, my mind just goes crazy during that time, Trust that God is going to use that to settle you down, to help you maybe be less reactive to a conflict situation, or maybe just have a greater awareness of his voice when somebody comes to you and is sharing their their, their difficulties. You might have a real sense of what God's saying. You'll experience the benefits of this as you practice it more and more and more. So how do we practice solitude? Just to wrap up here, how do we do it? There's four different practices I want to look at First of all, I want to start with maybe the, the most obvious one and the, maybe the most challenging one, and that is take a retreat. You know, I hesitate to put this first, but honestly, this is the gold standard of solitude. <laughs> uh, it might sound strange to you. It might sound like you might just hear this and think, no way could I do this. But taking 24 hours to go off on your own and actually get time with God is, is, is something that people do all the time. And it's, you know, it's, it, it, I, I would encourage you, whether it's, you know renting, a, renting an Airbnb or getting a uh, going to a retreat center or going camping, there's so many different ways that you can do this, but the whole idea is just to go off the grid for a while and devote all your time and attention to God. So I do this annually, at least. I usually take about three days. I go up to a Christian retreat center near Leeds. And all I can say is I've never regretted taking this time. And we could spend a whole sermon talking about what to do with that time and how to make the most of it. But all I can say is I come away with a greater sense of clarity and focus in my life and a greater sense of God's presence. And this might sound impossible for you, but I challenge you to just give 24 hours to God and see what he will do. 24 hours and see what he'll do with it. And I bet you won't regret it. But... There are some bite-sized approaches to this. Maybe you don't want to start with a full-on personal retreat. Maybe you want to take a a more gradual approach to this. And so you could do uh, what I'm calling quarterly mini-retreats. The author, uh, uh, um, oh gosh, what's his name? Richard Foster talks about this. And, And the whole idea here is you take maybe an evening, three or four hours in an evening or on a Saturday morning, and you just pull aside. You kind of switch off all the external inputs and just Focus on God, and you bring before him, you know, maybe your life goals, or you just, you know, bring to him the, the different aspects of your life and get him to speak into those areas. You know, you could do this in your office. You could find a quiet corner in your home, maybe in a, in a library uh, or a park. Just taking those t- that time once a quarter. We all could do that, three or four hours once a quarter, to just simply sit with God and say, God, speak into my life, direct my paths, and he will do it. He will. That's his promise is that he's going to lead you. He's going to guide you. But often we just have to slow down enough to receive that guidance. Thirdly, I want to encourage you to take 10. Take 10. In other words, take 10 minutes a day to simply be still and give your attention to God. So for me, this looks like I just set a timer on my watch and I open my hands. I pray a very short prayer of, God, I'm here for you. Would you come and meet with me? and then I focus on him for 10 minutes. Now this can be really challenging, but this is maybe the best routine I know of to deal with the mind monkey, you know? Uh, I use the, the, the rhythm of my breathing to help me stay focused, and when I breathe in, I'll just say, God, I receive your love right now, and then I exhale. Inhale, God, I receive your love right now, and I exhale. And that's, that process starts, and then the mind monkey starts, and he's like, hey, remember all that stuff you've got today? Oh, my gosh, you've got this, and you've got that. And then, and then I'll catch myself, and I'll be like, wait, 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 okay. Jesus, here I am. I receive your love right now. And I, and I just learned to develop that, that capacity to just stay with God and receive his love. I mean, think about it. How often do you pause? You know, when we pray, for most of us, it's about telling God what we need. But How often do you pause to simply receive from him? God wants you to experience his love. He wants to love you. But sometimes we have to just kind of actually put ourselves in a receiving posture for that to happen. This is such a great way to root yourself and establish yourself in the love of God. So when the distractions come, when all those things happen, you you just kind of keep using your breathing to keep coming back to this. And so taking 10 minutes a day, is a great starting place to practice solitude. We can all do that at some point in our day. I encourage you to do it first thing in the morning. That's a great way to start your day. But we can all do this. And finally, because you, know, you might be thinking, I don't even know, maybe you're a mother of, of small children, and you're thinking, I don't even know if I could get that 10 minutes. That, that might be a bit of a stretch for me. Well, you can incorporate pockets of solitude into your daily routine. And there's lots of different ways you can do that. Lots of different ways that that you can just grab those little moments of solitude here and there. So, you know, for example, you could just wake up 20 minutes before everyone else just to grab those moments of stillness and solitude in your house before the day gets going. Or if you're a night owl, you could stay up late. You could stay up after everybody else has gone to bed. And use that time instead of just mindlessly scrolling on your phone, use that time to connect with God. Be intentional about it. Another example would be maybe treating your your shower time like a fortress of solitude. You know, our showers are the closest thing to a monastic cell that many of us have. And that's actually a great time. I can't tell you the number of times I've had God speak to me while I'm in the shower, give me ideas and thoughts and direction. And I think part of the reason for that is because it's one of the few times that I'm not listening to something else. (laughs) So our showers are actually a great time. Um, you could, if you work out, you can do your workouts in silence. I know we love to use our headphones to get us psyched up and you know be able to work out harder. But actually, uh, I, you know I, I love cycling. One of my favorite things is to actually go out and ride, and I never wear headphones when I'm doing that because it allows me to connect with what with with, uh, with God and to actually be aware of what's happening in nature. And all of that are forms of solitude. Um, you could commute to work in silence actually taking your commute time and not listening to things, not turning on the radio, not turning on podcasts, not listening to music. And that might sound like the worst idea ever. That might sound really, really boring and challenging, but this is something I've been trying to incorporate into my life more lately, and it is amazing. Now, I don't do this every time, but especially if I notice that I'm anxious about something or upset about something or riled up, spun up about one thing or another, it helps me to just not listen to anything, to have silence in my car, to make it my own little monastic cell as I drive home where I can just simply, you know, if I just need to zone out, I zone out. But often I'm just, I'm just saying, God, what do you want to say? And so many times he has given me just vital little nudges that have rescued me, that have kept me from walking into a meeting reacting to some sort of anxiety that I'm feeling or some sort of frustration I'm dealing with. So many times he's come along and rescued me. This is a great little practice that you can incorporate. Uh, Other ways of doing this are just when you take a lunch break, leave uh, uh, leave your phone behind and go out to a park, sit on a bench. Or if you're eating by yourself, don't have your phone or your screen with you. Just simply enjoy your food and eat in silence. And the bonus of that is that uh, science shows us that we tend to eat less if we don't have a screen in front of us. Um, I'd encourage you when you wake up in the morning, rather than checking your phone first thing, give it 20 or 30 minutes. Use those first few minutes to do 10 minutes of solitude before God. Use that time before, because you know, you check your phone and something in you switches on. You, You kind of get that adrenaline surge. You see the news notifications. You see the text. You see the different things that are happening. Pause on that. Give the first parts of your day to God. That's a practice of solitude. Or maybe just turning off your phone in daily routines when you're getting ready in the morning, when you're getting ready ready to go to bed at night. I often listen to podcasts during those times, as my family will tell you, but it's a great idea to just simply switch that off and give your, your mind space to just connect with God while you're doing those kind of mindless routine tasks that you do you could take a tech Sabbath. I mean, if you haven't caught the theme yet, technology is an enemy of solitude. We can be alone, but we can still be very connected to the world thanks to our phones. But take a tech Sabbath. Just switch off from all the things. Switch your phone off for 24 hours. Now, I know that might sound like a complete and the most unrealistic thing I've said yet. But a couple of years ago, uh, I went to a men's retreat in which they enforced that we had to turn off our phones for three days. And it was a big, you know, there was a contact number in case there was an emergency with our family and all that, but, but I have to tell you, it was brilliant. <laughs> I, I, it's the first time I'd been without my phone in more than 10 years, and man, it was amazing. I felt so much more free and less distracted and more present both to the people I was with and to God. And when it was over, I felt really reluctant to turn it back on. I really just didn't want to do it. I really encourage you to, to, to switch off your phone for a while. I mean, you could go even further and do a full input Sabbath, you know, just take a break from books, from media, from anything else, and just give your full attention to God. There's so many different ways that you could do this, but but what I want to do is just challenge you, out of these four things that I've listed, I want you to just think, what can I do? What is one practice of solitude, of all the things that I've said, or maybe you've had your own ideas that I haven't mentioned, what is one of these things that you can embrace and bring into your own life? Because you need it. You've got to find those moments of solitude in this culture. And you've got to find those moments where you can come home to yourself and just be fully present to God. And if you do this, if you're willing to push through that discomfort, you'll find that God will meet with you, and you're going to want to come back. You're going to want more of it. And if you're squirming right now, if you feel like, no, this isn't for me, I don't really want to do this, and you're just just missing the whole idea, then just ask yourself why. Explore that. Get curious about that idea. Why is it that you're resistant to this idea? That in itself is your first step towards solitude. Because if you can figure out what it is that makes you want to avoid this, then maybe you'll begin to be able to come up with an answer of how to actually enter into solitude. But my desire for us as a church is that we would actually practice this. Because if we do this, not only will we love God more, not only will we be able to love each other better, not only will we be happier, will we be uh, more emotionally healthy, will we be more holy, I mean, we will become more like Jesus if we are willing to embrace getting alone with God, spending time with him. That's what this is all about. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, God, have mercy on us. Lord, we, uh, the, the relentless pace of this world is exhausting. Lord, I pray, God, that you would help us. We've been discipled by this world. We've been trained by this world to constantly go, to constantly accomplish, to constantly accumulate, to constantly be connected through technology. And Lord, the idea of doing something different seems really foreign and strange to us. But Jesus, you modeled this. So Lord, give us the courage to follow the model that you've set for us. Show us, God, the next steps that you have for us. Show us what one step we can make towards solitude might be for us this week. And Lord, I pray that you would meet with us as we take that time to, to just be alone with you, God, that you would bring us back to ourselves, God, that you expose the places where we're, where we're stuck, Lord, and set us free. Help us, Lord, not to be put off by the discomfort of that, but to actually receive it as the gift that it is. Lord Jesus, make us whole and make us holy as we spend time with you. Make us like you. And as we end this series, Lord, I just pray that, uh, Father, we would become genuine disciples, genuine apprentices of Jesus. And that when people look at us, they'd say, man, that is a different person than the the person I used to know. I want to know more about what's transforming them. Make us like you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today. To listen to more messages like this one, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk forward slash podcast. We are looking forward to seeing you soon.